0: Have you ever wondered how a preacher knows what to preach? you ever wondered that? I can remember years ago, I was at a church in Florida for a service with a group of friends. And after the service was over with, I said to one of my friends who happened to be from Mississippi, I said, that's one of the best sermons I've ever heard in all my life. And my friend said to me, have you never heard that sermon? I said, well, no, I've never been to this church. I've never heard that pastor preach. He said, well, that wasn't that pastor's sermons. That was one of Rick Warren's sermons from the Internet. And he said, that pastor just went online and Rick Warren doesn't mind if people do that. I said, you mean he didn't even preach his own sermon? He said, no, man. He, and I thought to myself, well, maybe that's what I should start doing is going online and getting the sermons. Preaching them like that. I was real disappointed. As I think about my own life and my own preaching, I think there are several ways. I, I've never preached a sermon off of the Internet, somebody else's sermon. But I think there are several ways that I seem to know what I think God wants me to preach. One would be just based on something I'm going through in my own life. In other words, if I'm struggling with fear, or if I'm struggling to know God's will, or if I'm struggling with something, or going through something, or maybe God's taught me something, that's in my heart. And so... It's easy to come out here and preach something that's in your heart. And I've noticed through the years that my most heartfelt and impassioned sermons seem to be just right out of my own heart what God's doing in my own life. Sometimes, though, I don't necessarily preach based on what I'm going through. I preach based on what other people are going through. In other words, you as a minister at a church, you know when several people are going through grief or other people might be going through depression or maybe people are going through a financial setback. And if you see a significant number of people going through this in a short amount of time. You, you begin to search the scripture and say, God, what does your word have to say that could encourage people who are going through this? I can remember years ago, one of the little booklets we put together was called What Happens at the Moment of Death? And the reason I wrote that had nothing to do with me. It had to do with some of you, and you had lost a loved one. And I always thought if we could just put in people's hands what happens when a a loved one dies, that that would be an encouragement. And so sometimes God will get our attention that way. Sometimes, though, you preach a sermon not based on what you might be going through or based on what others are going through, but what's happening in the world. I can remember on September the 11th in 2001, it was a Tuesday when those terrorists took over those airplanes and flew them into the World Trade Centers and into the Pentagon. And and I can remember my parents were in Tennessee on a vacation that day, so I was scheduled to preach the Tuesday Bible lunch, and I was home that morning getting that ready. I turned the TV on and saw what had happened, and I can't even remember what what my sermon was supposed to be about, but I remember thinking my sermon is no longer relevant I've got to say something about what's happening in the world and what God's Word would say to that particular situation. And so, I put together a sermon in a hurry. I don't think it was a very good sermon. People thought it was good, though, because it was relevant and it spoke to what was happening in the world at that time. So, sometimes God gets your attention that way. All of these are legitimate ways to preach. As long as you're preaching what the Bible says then all of these are legitimate ways to get you to a particular Bible passage. But sometimes God will put on a preacher's mind and in his heart a particular passage of Scripture. Maybe a verse, maybe a chapter, maybe an entire book. And... We know that God has put that on our heart and that's what we're supposed to preach on. This happened about a year and a half ago. My dad and I both have thought and prayed about what we should be preaching out here on Sundays and we just felt led to go to the Gospel of John and to teach through all 21 chapters some tremendous scripture there about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we just finished that study last Sunday and hopefully that, that was encouraging and a blessing to you. Well, a similar thing happened to me about six months ago. I began thinking about what I was going going to preach on our Wednesday night service and in my heart I just felt that I should teach and preach out of the book of Revelation. And to be honest with you when I felt that thought in my mind and it just wouldn't go away and it got down in my heart, my first thought was, "Oh no, that's not an easy book to preach from." And then I thought, well, I'm not even sure if we need to do that because I remember 25 or 26 years ago, my dad preached through the book of Revelation at the old location. Back in 2010, I preached through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights here. And so the more I thought about it, it was like God said to me in my heart, John, it's been nine years since you preached through that, and even then it was only on a Wednesday night service, and so I said to our Wednesday night crowd at the first of this year, I said, I feel led to start a series on the book of Revelation, and we'll start it in a few weeks, and when I I feel in my heart that it's the right time, we'll just start it, and so I would... I was preaching sermons on Wednesday night, and and I just thought, you know, it would be a good idea, maybe before we dive into Revelation, maybe to preach about the the Apostle John. He's who wrote the book of Revelation, so I did a sermon on his life. Maybe I should give an overview of the Gospel of John, kind of like I did last week. I did that. I preached a sermon on 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. I just kept putting off getting into the book of Revelation, and I know those people on Wednesday nights thought, he's never going to do it. He's just putting it off. What they didn't know was, in my heart, It was like God was saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. On Wednesday night, May the 1st, I said to that group, I said, listen... Strange thing, I said, I'm feeling led to preach in Revelation on Sunday mornings, but I've told you guys I'm going to do it on Wednesday nights. And I said, I'm not asking you to tell me what to do, but I I do value your opinion. And I asked that Wednesday night group, I said, how many of you think, instead of doing this on Wednesday night, that I should preach out of Revelation on Sunday morning? And virtually everybody raised their hand. And I took that as a confirmation, and so I said, okay, we'll do it on Sunday morning sometime in June. And since today is the last day of June, I've, I've put it off as long as I can. And it's not that I don't want to preach out of it. It's a great book. It's just, it, it, the preaching of it is not any harder than any sermon. Like what I'm doing right now is not, not difficult. But it's the preparing to preach out of Revelation is a little bit harder than just preaching a regular sermon. And so I'm praying that in the weeks and months ahead, that this series will not only be a blessing to your mind and that it will give you information that will be helpful, but also that it will be a blessing to your heart. And that as we study these future events, it will change how all of us live our lives. Amen. Isn't that a good word for us to start with? So if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, I want us to begin our study from this fascinating, fascinating book. Now, interestingly enough, the word revelation literally means apocalypse. That's how it's transliterated from the Greek word apocalypsis. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the apocalypse. What does that mean? That Greek word apocalypsis literally means unveiling or disclosure or revelation. And so that's what we have in the book of Revelation. We have an unveiling, a revealing of something that had previously been hidden. We have a disclosure of, of something or an undisclosure of something that had previously been disclosed. Disclosed, and we have a revelation. Now, in this book, we have a revelation of two things, and it's very important that we understand this. First of all, we have a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, in this book, we have an unveiling, a full disclosure of the person of Jesus Christ. And next Sunday morning, I want to preach a whole sermon about the vision of Jesus that the Apostle John had on the island of Patmos, how the Scripture says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard a voice behind him, and he turned around to see whose this voice could be. And he saw Jesus Christ high and lifted up. He saw Jesus in a way he had never seen Jesus before in all of his life. A a, a different part of Jesus was revealed to him. And so first and foremost, in the book of Revelation, we have a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we have a revelation of future events. We do. We see how the world will one day end. And we find both of this, uh, both of these bits of information in the very first verse of the book. Look at it with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, when it says shortly, it doesn't necessarily mean immediately. Immediately. The idea behind that word shortly is quickly. That is, whenever these things begin to happen, and they could happen at any moment, but they will happen fast. They will happen quickly. And so that's the idea here. And let's read on. And he sent and signified it by his angel. So that is, Jesus sent his angel to his servant, John, the apostle John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he Saw. And so the Apostle John has this vision of Jesus and of future events. And Jesus said to him, write it down, John. I want my people to be able to discover what has, up until this point anyway, been hidden. Now, the question is, why should we study the book of Revelation? Why would I or any other preacher in his right mind make a commitment to spend the next several months preparing and preaching sermons from the book of Revelation. And I think there are two primary reasons for that. Number one, so that we will be blessed. Now, to be clear, anytime we open the Bible and read it privately or hear it preached from publicly, we're going to be blessed. But did you know the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that specifically promises a blessing to those who hear it and to those who obey it? Look in verse number three. It says, blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so we read about a special blessing that God will give to those who read this book and to those who heed what is taught in this book. And so you may not have thought about this or even in any way been aware of it, but by the fact that you came to church today... And are being read to and reading yourself from this book and hearing it taught, there will be a special blessing upon your life for that. So that's the first reason I'm excited about our study. The second reason we should study this book is so that we will begin to connect the dots of biblical prophecy and current events. So many things are happening in our world today. We get home in the evening. We turn on the evening news. We see what's happening in the Middle East. We see what's happening in Iran. We see what's happening in Europe. We see what's happening all over the world. And hopefully, through our study in this book, we will be able to read those newspaper articles, watch the evening news, and to connect some dots and to say... Is this a sign that the world as we know it is coming to an end? And so it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing his letters 2,000 years ago, he said that he was living in the last days, and he was. But if Paul was living in the last days 2,000 years ago, that means we're living in the last hours in the day in which we live. And What I'm saying is, I believe with all of my heart that we are living on the brink of the end of the world as we know it. I think the world is just this close to being over with. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have goals for the future. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a 10-year plan, but I'm saying this, in 10 years from now, we may have already been in heaven for nine years, and what happened to your 10-year plan? I'm not saying you shouldn't have a retirement account, or a retirement plan. I have a retirement account. I contribute money to it every month. I'm not saying we shouldn't. In fact, I think we should. God would have us to be responsible. I'm just saying this, in my heart of hearts, I don't ever think I'll tap into my retirement plan. I think I'll be in heaven. I think the world will be over long before I would ever get to the age where I would retire. And so we think about all these plans. We've got a retirement plan. We've got a lake house we want to buy. We've got all these things we want to do. And it's not bad to have those plans, but we're foolish... If we don't at least consider that the world as we know it could end long before those plans ever come into place. And so I'm hoping we'll be able to connect those dots. Now, what I want to give you today are four reasons why I believe we're living in the last days. Why I believe we are living on the very brink, the very edge of eternity number one and this is extremely important and that is the rebirth of israel the rebirth of israel if you're a student of history, you know that in the year A.D. 70, the Romans invaded uh, Jerusalem. They destroyed the beautiful temple that Herod had built, knocked down the walls around many of the walls around the city, and they just destroyed Jerusalem and the Jewish people in 70 A.D. As had happened previously, but for sure at this time, they were taken captive and they were dispersed all across the world. Many of them were taken to Rome as slaves where they ended up dying for their faith in the Colosseum there along with the wild animals. Others were dispersed to other regions and areas of the world. But for all practical purposes in the year 70 AD the nation of Israel ceased to be a nation. Jewish people were everywhere. You study who occupied that land for the next 1900 years and you'll find that it was virtually everybody but the Jewish people who were in charge of their own land. But on May the 14th, 1948, something incredible happened. The nation of Israel was reborn. Back in those days, there was a Jewish leader named David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion. And and Mr. Ben-Gurion went to uh, a particular place in Israel on this particular day in 1948. And he made a speech Declaring that the Jewish nation was reestablishing itself and this is what he said. This right is the natural right of the Jewish people to be masters of their own fate like all other nations in their own sovereign state. Accordingly, we are here assembled, and by virtue of our natural and historic right, on the strength of the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly, hereby declare the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Israel, to be known as the State of Israel. 6,000 miles away, President Truman sat in the Oval Office reading a statement. He signed his approval and noted the time, 6.10 p.m., One minute later, the White House press secretary read the release to the world. The United States had officially recognized the birth of the modern nation of Israel. And so in one day, the nation of Israel was reborn. I'm reading this, by the way, from a book I purchased a few weeks ago by David Jeremiah, who pastors in San Diego, and he's written a book called The Book of Signs. And if you would like a helpful book to read while we're going through the book of Revelation, it's certainly not the only one, but it is a great book. And he tells us there about how Israel was reborn in one day. You say, John, what's the significance of Israel? What? Did, how does Israel have anything to do with Israel? End time events has everything to do with it. As we'll see in our study, the book of Israel will play a prominent role during end times events. During that seven-year period after the church is taken to heaven and the tribulation period is going on on the earth, much of that activity is centered in Israel. Many Jewish people will be saved. 144,000, the Bible says, Jews will be saved. It is there that the Antichrist will assert himself in the rebuilt Jewish temple and demand that he be worshipped as God. The Antichrist will persecute the Jewish people, and so Israel plays a prominent role in the end times event. Now, think about this. They couldn't play a prominent role in end times events if they didn't exist. And so the fact that this nation has been reborn uh, says to us that we are living at a very, very interesting time. Let me give you a couple of scripture verses. Don't look these up. Just let me give it. You can write it down. In Ezekiel 36 in verse 24, God said, speaking to Israel, For I will take you from among the nations gather you out of all your countries and bring you into your own land. I don't think we understand how amazing what has happened in Israel is. There's never been a country that was destroyed and dispersed Whose language was virtually dead, the Hebrew language virtually dead for 1900 years, and all of a sudden, here come the Jewish people back. Today, eight and a half million people live in Israel. It is a state smaller, a nation smaller than the state of New Jersey. And yet, other than the United States, no nation in the world dominates the world news and the world stage more than the nation of Israel. Israel. It is a democracy in the midst of a world where there aren't very many democracies. Let me read another verse in Isaiah 66 in verse 8. It says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth. To her children. So the Bible is saying, who's ever heard of anything like this? Can a nation be born in one day? Only if God made that possible. With God all things are possible. And God has reestablished the Jewish people. And that nation has been reborn. And so I'm saying to you, in, in Jerusalem today, in Israel today, the stage is set for these end time events. The second reason I believe we're living in the last days is because of the European Union the European Union. The European Union was formed on November the 1st, 1993. It is a political union of 28 nations representing about 513 million people. 19 of these nations all use the same currency. If you've traveled through Europe, you know all about the euro. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that is during the end times, we know that there will be a one world currency. We read about, learn about that in Revelation. And we also read that the world will be led by one dominant ruler. And that ruler, the Antichrist, could easily emerge from a federation like the European Union. In other words, you've got all these countries coming together. They're looking for solidarity, and they're looking for someone to lead them. Now, something very interesting I read... From David Jeremiah's book, he's quoting a man I had never heard of named Paul Henry Spock. And Paul Henry Spock was the first president of the European Parliament. And the European Parliament was kind of the forerunner of the European Union. It was an institution that was responsible for forming this union where all these nations, primarily from Europe, are coming together. And here's what he said years ago He said, We do not need another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift us out of the economic morris into which we are sinking. Send us such a man and be he God or the devil, we will receive him. The man who's responsible for forming the European Union said, we don't need a committee, we don't need a board, we don't need a vote, we need one man who can lead us can't you see how the Antichrist at a time when all hell will be breaking loose on this earth will arise and say, if you follow me, I will provide peace. If you follow me, I'll lead you to political stability and to financial security. Follow me. So the stage is set in Europe for that to happen. Now, people often ask, what about America and end time events? What does the Bible say America's role will be? The Bible says absolutely nothing. Keep in mind, biblically, when it's talking about end times events, you're reading largely about the piece of the, the pieces of land near and around Israel. And in the course, in the grand scheme of things, America is a very young nation, less than 250 years old. These are other nations much, much older than that. And so America has no role mentioned in Scripture as related to the end time events, but use your imagination. If the rapture of the church took place today and all the Christians were taken up into heaven just like that, America would cease to be a superpower. We would become just another nation because half, approximately half or maybe more than half of our citizens would have gone on to heaven. So now you have a much weakened America. One could even imagine America during that time joining the European Union and being a part of that trying to protect themselves against threats from Russia or other nations that those in Europe would in the european uh, confederacy or the european uh, union would would view more as a threat so maybe america will be absorbed into that but what i'm saying is With the European Union, the stage is set for a leader to arise and say, follow me. And that's exactly how Antichrist will do it. Another reason I believe we're living in the last days is because of the sinfulness and the selfishness that marks our day. Now, turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. I want to read just a few verses here. This is very practical. But it has to do with the end times. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul said, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Now listen to this description and see if this doesn't describe you on some occasions. I can see myself in this sometime and certainly the world in which we live. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Think about that. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of money, rather than lovers of God. That, doesn't that describe the day in which we live? And then another reason I believe we're living in the last days, not only the rebirth of Israel, the European Union, and the selfishness and sin of our day, but the created world is groaning. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24? He's talking about the end times. He said, at the end of the age, there'll be wars, there'll be rumors of wars, there'll be famines, there'll be pestilences, there'll be earthquakes. And he said, now when these things happen, the end is not yet these are the begin- this is the beginning of the end and so it wouldn't be honest for me to get up here and say hey because we're having earthquakes and natural disasters that means the world is coming to an end we've always been having those things but science tells us that the number of natural disasters is increasing in frequency and in intensity. And in Romans chapter 8, and did I tell you to go there in Romans chapter 8? I can't remember if I did. But in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, Paul compares the created world to a woman who's pregnant and about to give birth. And here's what he said. He said, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Paul is saying, here's what happens with a, with a pregnant lady as she goes along in that pregnancy. Seven months, eight months, nine months. She's carried that baby full term. She's having these birth pains. They're becoming more frequent. They're becoming more intense. She knows it's about time for a baby to be born. Paul said the same thing is going to happen in the world. The earth itself is groaning, the creation. These earthquakes, what is happening here? Remember, when Adam and Eve sinned, a curse came upon this earth. There never would have been an earthquake without sin, but sin has affected the the earth itself. And so with earthquakes, the earth is saying to us, I'm not stable, I'm restless, I'm not... I'm not at peace. I'm not at ease. And even in nature, we're seeing these hurricanes. Studies tell us that in the last 30 years, category 4 and 5 hurricanes have increased by 80%. Earthquakes 7.0 on the Richter scale and above have increased. So what's happening? What is nature saying to us? Nature is saying that due to the frequency and intensity of these natural disasters, something is about to happen. Paul said the created world, creation, is groaning with birth pains and... And where there are birth pains, there eventually is birth. When a woman is in birth pains, there will eventually be the birth of a baby. When the created world is having birth pains, there eventually will be the return of Jesus Christ. And so for these reasons, I believe that we're living in the last days. Now, if you still listen? Say amen. As I've thought about this study and what I pray happens in the next few weeks and even months as we study through the book of Revelation, there are three primary desires I have in my heart and three things I pray will happen to you and to me number one I pray that through our study we will be able to see Jesus Christ more clearly than we ever have remember at the first of this book the revelation of Jesus Christ that we'll be able to see Christ high and lifted up above our circumstances above our sins above whatever we're facing in life, that we would be able to see Jesus. Number two in our study, I pray that we would be able to see end times events more clearly, that we would be able to connect these dots and to, to be able to say, based on what's happening in Israel, based on what's happening in Europe, that we are coming to the very end of life as we know it. And the third thing I pray happens is that we will have a passion to see people saved beyond anything we've ever known. You know, if all we do in this series, and I guess one of the reasons I've been a little reluctant to start it, is because when I preach, I'm an application, pre- I'm very devotional in everything I do, and I just thought, Lord, I don't want to just get up there and spout all facts and information that may be part of it, and I felt like God said, That's not, you don't have to. Teach it devotionally. Teach it life application. And, and I think that may, perhaps the greatest application that we can learn from the book of Revelation is that at the end of the book, there's heaven and there's hell. And there are a lot of people who are going to end up in heaven, and there are a lot of people who are going to end up in hell. And my prayer is that as we study through this book, that we would begin to see that we have a responsibility to share our faith in Jesus Christ with those who have never been saved. One of the ways I'll know that this series is accomplishing all that God wants it to accomplish is that as we go through the upcoming weeks and we give the invitation that people in large numbers will just be coming down these aisles to be saved. I said in the first service, Bobby Grimes, who heads up our Christians in Recovery, our ministry here at the church, almost every Sunday morning in the 930 service, and it happened again today, when we give the invitation to ask people to come forward, almost every Sunday, Bobby walks down the aisle with somebody he has led to Jesus Christ the previous week. I said to Bobby a couple of Sundays ago during the invitation, I said, Bobby, you're leading more people to Jesus than the rest of us combined. And I said, I'm just blessed by that. Let me ask you this question. This is a convicting question I have to ask myself. Let me ask you this question. How long has it been since you walked down the aisle during an invitation with somebody you led to the Lord the previous week? You see, this study we're going to get into is going to be a good study, and God's going to bless it. He's promised to do that. But one of the ways I'll know that it has reached its maximum potential is if large numbers of people begin to get saved. And if large numbers of our people, those of us who are already saved, begin to take seriously our command from God to share our faith, to invite people to church, to say to people that we go to school with or work with or or interact with, Hey, come to church with me on Sunday. One of our preachers is teaching us through the book of Revelation talking about end times event what's happening in the world and what does that mean to us it's really interesting and I wish you would come and if we could see people get saved in large numbers I believe that God would be very pleased with what's happening here I want to read one last thing today before I I close One, one more thing from this book by David Jeremiah aren't you glad I bought this book what would I be doing up here today if I hadn't bought this but I read this story that he told in fact he's quoting another preacher we're all quoting somebody I guess But he told a story that John Piper, well-known pastor and theologian, had told. And so what I like about this, it makes us use our imagination. And so today, as we come to the end, I want you to use your imagination as we think about heaven, as we think about hell, as we think about the seriousness of it all and the finality of it all. John Piper says this, Picture 269 people entering eternity through a plane crash in the sea of Japan. Before the crash, there are a noted politician, a millionaire corporate executive, a playboy and his playmate, and a missionary kid on the way back from visiting grandparents. After the crash, they stand before God Utterly stripped of MasterCards, checkbooks, credit lines, image clothes, how to succeed books, and Hilton reservations. Here are the politician, the executive, the playboy, and the missionary kid, all on level ground with nothing, absolutely nothing in their hands, possessing only What they brought in their hearts. How absurd and tragic the lover of money will seem on that day. Like a man who spends his whole life collecting train tickets. And in the end is so weighed down by the collection that he misses the last train. I think the thing that got my attention when I read that quote, that story there, was this phrase here possessing only what they brought in their hearts. As I have said, we have a responsibility to invite friends to church, and hopefully we'll do that, and to share our faith with others. But this morning as we begin our study, let me ask you this question. Now, we're not on an airplane today And if we were, we're certainly not going to be flying over the sea of Japan. And so we know for sure today that we will not die that way today. Let me ask you this question. If you died today and stepped out into eternity to stand before God, do you know beyond the shadow of any doubt that you have Jesus Christ living in your heart? You see, before we really stress inviting others to the services and bringing others to church and having a passion and urgency to see people saved, I'm asking you today, do you know for sure that Jesus is in your heart? And if you would say to that question, John, I'm not 100% sure. I don't know. I, I not know," or Maybe you would say, I know that, that he's not there. Let me ask you this question. Could you give me one rational reason? why you would not receive Jesus Christ today into your heart to be your Lord and to be your Savior so that no matter whenever your time is and whenever the end happens to be and whenever you stand before God, you know for sure that Jesus is in your heart. And so I'm going to ask if we could just bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And I believe there are people in this service, if you really want to know what I believe, I believe there are people in this service right now who need to be saved. That's what I believe. We saw it in the first service. We saw several make decisions for the Lord in the earlier hour. And typically there are are more visitors in this service than the first one. And so if you don't know for sure that Jesus Christ is living in your heart, would you just pray this prayer right now? Say, Lord Jesus, this is serious business. This is my eternity he's talking about. God this is heaven or this is hell and God I have to be sure and so I ask you now Lord Jesus come into my heart forgive my sins and make me a Christian I ask you to save me and I trust you to do it with heads bowed and eyes closed nobody looking around but me I'm going to do exactly what I did in the early hour if you prayed that prayer I want you just to raise your hand I'm not going to embarrass you I'm not gonna ask you to stand up or I just I just want to know what's happening in this room. If you just prayed that prayer to be saved, raise your hand. I see two already who have who've raised their hand. Who else? I'm just looking across the room. Anybody else? Anybody in our student section today? Have any of our students been saved? Maybe everybody here's already saved. Is anybody else? Okay. I saw maybe, maybe, okay. Maybe three in this service have prayed to be saved. For those of you who prayed that prayer, the The Bible says Jesus has just saved you. He's forgiven your sins. He'll never leave you. You're saved. And now you're ready to die. You're ready to go to stand before God. If you've never confessed Christ openly and publicly, we're going to ask you during this next song. Again, we saw a good number in that first service do that. If you have never received Jesus Christ... Or if you've never confessed him openly and publicly during this next song, we're going to ask you to come. Others here today, you've already done that, but you feel God leading you to join our church. You ought to be the first to come. Those who've just gotten saved or who still need to be saved, man, they're nervous about coming to the front. But if you'll come to join the church, they'll draw courage from your obedience. And they may make their salvation decision today. Father, I pray during this next song that there'll be a freedom here. And that people will respond to your Holy Spirit's leading. In Jesus' name we pray and all the people said amen and amen.